Hi, you're listening to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Ogden, Utah. My name is John Draskovic. I'm the pastor here. And what you'll hear is the message, the sermon from the week's worship before. And uh, you can always check out the full service that has the music and our prayers and liturgy on our YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube, you can just search First Presbyterian Church Ogden and you can find us there. We've got all our services recorded, including the, the most recent um, live stream of our, of our service. I hope you enjoy this podcast and you find it to be a blessing. Grace and peace to you, my friends, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to the podcast for this Sunday's worship, which was August 20th, and we're going to be looking at the whole of John chapter 9. It's one long narrative, one long story about an interaction between Jesus and a man who was born blind, and he heals him. And this is the story where Jesus spits in the mud and makes this kind of muddy saliva paste which, yeah, let's be honest, it's a little gross, but it's part of the story. And it puts it on, he puts it on his eyes and he tells him to go and wash and he is healed. And then we find out that this happened on the Sabbath. And so now some of the Jerusalem Pharisees, the kind of really uh, kind of stringent religious folks, are, they approach the man. There's an interaction between the man who was healed and the Pharisees. There's an interaction between the man's parents and the Pharisees, and then they call the man himself back in, and then ultimately Jesus interacts with the man. It's great. It's a great story. You should go and read John chapter 9 before you listen to this if you have some time, uh, just so that you're kind of set up for it. And we're going to talk about what this is uh, trying to represent this uh, overlay. We talk about temples, ancient Near East temples, how heaven, it was the representation of heaven and earth overlapping. How Jesus becomes that place where heaven and earth overlap and how that connection, that overlap between God's realm and human realm and creation through Jesus starts breaking out into creation and, and this healing of the man is an example of that. We also talk about fear and love and being driven by fear versus being driven by love. Uh, and so this is also the chapter where Jesus calls himself the light of the world, the light that illuminates the darkness, that chases away the darkness. And, you know, the theme of light and dark is really big in John. Well, you see it here in this week, the, the theme of being blind and seeing. And so we'll talk about that some too. So I hope you have a great uh, experience with the, the message this week and you enjoy it. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Almighty God, your compassion embraces everyone, and you gather the outcast and the lost. You heal the wounds of fear and distrust, and you build us, make us a community of reconciliation so that we can embody your love and your mercy and rejoice in your grace. Lord, by the power of your spirit, give us your words of life so that our face Faith would increase and our hearts would be made whole so that we too could see. Amen. So I remember when I was a kid, I had this experience, and maybe this would sound familiar to you, when uh, some kind of thing of misfortune would fall upon you, when the 
bad luck fairy would choose you to have that thing happen that day. My friends, who I still question whether they were friends or not, would have this claim. They would say, well, God must be punishing you. And they always seemed to say it with a smug smile on their face, almost as if they kind of enjoyed it. That sentiment, God must be punishing you. If you wanted to spend a little bit more time, just read the book of Job. That's pretty much what it is. It's like 37 chapters of Job's friends saying, what did you do? God must be punishing you. There must be some Sin, because bad things happen to people for a reason. And in the story of the man born blind, this takes up all of chapter 9 in John's gospel, there is an assumed connection between the man's condition, his congenital condition, he was born this way, and some kind of sin. There must be a reason. This kind of stuff just doesn't happen. So it's either his sin or his parents' sin. And this way of thinking, it, you, it makes sense. It comes from this place of trying to hold on to a belief of God's justice, that there is a sense of justice in the world, that when the world feels or it seems unfair, because of who God is, is all-loving, all-powerful, and all-just, it must only seem unfair. There must be some kind of deeper root cause for this bad stuff that's happening. There must be some secret sin which is being punished. But Jesus resists that way of looking at the world. And so if we want to understand what Jesus is telling us about how the world really works, we might have to question and maybe even rethink and let go of some of the assumptions that we have and allow God to remake our image of how the world really works. Okay, so here is uh, one kind of, I think, maxim. The world is not a cosmic vending machine. You do not just put in your quarters, press the button, and out you get what you want. And yes, there are actions that have consequences, right? So I do believe this, that often you put good out into the world and you do have good returned. If you are kind and generous and giving, oftentimes you find yourself on the receiving end of kindness and generosity and mercy and forgiveness. And yes, when you put bad out into the world, oftentimes you find that there is bad that is returned to you, right? Car accidents tend to follow drunk driving. But it doesn't always happen like that. Good things do happen to bad people, and bad things do happen to good people. And what Jesus is saying is you cannot pin down somebody else's misfortune on their sin, or somebody else's sin. Rather, Jesus seems to be saying the chaos and mystery and misfortune that we all know exists in this world that every single one of you has experienced personally is somehow the raw material out of which God is making new creation. So we hear the story of 
the healing of this man. And, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. He spits in the ground and rubs the paste on his eyes. You're like, okay, that must have happened because nobody's making that stuff up. And then the Pharisees get involved. And we find out after the fact that Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. And so there's the rub. Okay? The Pharisees, they go to the guy and they're questioning him about it. And they respond, well, this, this cannot be from God. This man, Jesus, who you say opened your eyes, he cannot be from God because we know that he doesn't keep the Sabbath. And God wouldn't do that. And so we need to talk about Sabbath a little bit. Right? Sabbath was the day of rest at the end of the week. Sabbath anticipated the new creation. It anticipated God's reign. It was like a signpost that pointed to the thing that was going to come one day, the messianic age. And Sabbath really said, we're still waiting here now for that thing that is going to come, the new thing. It's a foretaste. It's an appetizer, if you will, for the main meal. Sabbath acknowledges that creation is good, but it's not complete. That in some ways it's broken. And we're waiting for its healing. And one of the reasons that I think Jesus does so much, it's like he just hangs around all week long. And he's like, well, uh, it's the Sabbath. It must be time now to get going and do some stuff. I think he does that because he's sending a message. That time, which we've been pointing to, waiting to come, is now. We don't need to wait anymore. It's not a foretaste. You don't need to keep having the appetizer because the main course is now in front of you. Jesus had come to complete creation, to make it new. And it seems to me that when the kingdom of God is at hand, when that messianic age comes, the rules that we used to live by seem to work differently. Right When Jesus is around and the kingdom of God is present, God seems to be comfortable breaking the rules that were meant to be signposts, like the Sabbath. Uh, if you think about it, God actually breaks God's own rules all the time. Every time he forgives, he's breaking his own rules. I mean, go all the way back to Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve. He said, if you eat of this fruit, surely you will die. And what happens? They eat of it, and he lets them live. He breaks his own rules all the time. And every time God forgives, God is breaking his own rules around purity and holiness. And this has a lot to do with temples. And so we need to talk from Sabbath now to temples. Because in the ancient Near East, there was a, a big deal was made out of temple and temple theology. And the temple was the place where the realm of creation of the world, here, let me do it this way so you can see. And the realm of heaven, that's God's domain, they kind of overlapped. Think about, remember in school you had the Venn diagram? Yeah. So like the temple is the place where the two spheres overlap. It was like the axis between heaven and earth. It was the place where God's presence was most full. They had just been at the temple in Jerusalem, and now Jesus had left. 
And so what Jesus is saying when he is talking about temples, he refers to himself as the temple, is that he is the place where heaven and earth overlap. It's not some building anymore. It's him, his presence. If you want to be as close to God as you possibly can, you hang out with him. And the things that he does and the things that he says are what it looks like to inhabit that place where heaven and earth overlap. This is what new creation looks like. And so when Jesus heals this man who had been born blind, when he rubbed that slimy spit saliva on him and he sent him to wash, this is a moment when God's truth and the good creation come together. It's like new creation is breaking out of that overlap and starting to infect and invade creation, the earthly sphere. And the Hebrew worldview had this way of thinking about this overlap, that temple place, right? Because the goal in the beginning, God wanted to be with his people. And the goal is to allow God to be again once with his people. That's what happens at the end of the story in Revelation. Well, all throughout is the story of Israel trying to be in God's presence. Remember when they're wandering in the wilderness? They say, please, Lord, don't send us out there without your presence. We can't go without you. If we do that, the other nations will kill us. Because to be in God's presence, you are living in God's shalom, his peace, his wholeness. Shalom was when the world was made right. And God's presence, God's shalom, brought the world into focus. It made things how they were supposed to be. Because right now, the idea is things are a little fuzzy. They're a little out of focus. It's like when you're looking through a lens of a camera and it's not quite right. And you're like, you kind of make it out, but it's not really sharp. But then at that point, everything will snap into focus. And they believed that God's holiness, God's presence demanded that if you were going to be around it, you had to be pure. And that's why purity is a big deal in the Hebrew scripture and trying to avoid impurity. That's the whole book of Leviticus. When you want to fall asleep at night, just turn to the book of Leviticus. And in their, their mind, impurity was like a disease. It could spread. And so impurity was passed. Like if you touch something that was impure, you became impure. And if you were impure, you could not be in God's presence. And so they had mechanisms for how to get rid of that impurity. In Jesus, the direction of that mechanism gets reversed. It works the other way around. Rather than impurity spreading and making other things impure, guess what happens? His purity spreads. And anything that he touches moves out into the world. That becomes the good disease. Jesus' holiness, the shalom, the kingdom of God starts invading and infecting the rest of the world. And so when Jesus heals this man who was born blind, it's one of those acts of his holiness and his goodness and God's shalom and the new creation moving out, spreading like a good virus into the world. And that man, I don't know if you caught it, was so different after he had been infected with new creation, after he had been healed, after his eyes had been opened, people didn't recognize him. 
They didn't even know who it was. You might have people in your life when you've been infected with that good virus who may not know who you are anymore. They may say, I thought we knew you. You're so different now. Who, who are you? You may be unrecognizable from who you used to be. Because this is what happens when God's light shines into our darkness. And so they call the man's parents in after they talk to him. Because, you know, I don't know. It's like, I'm going to go talk to your mom. Like the ultimate child threat, right? And so they call him and they question him. Because the Pharisees, they're, they're starting to be afraid. Because they don't know what's going on. They are afraid of the unknown. This guy, Jesus, is doing things that are breaking their paradigm. That's breaking their worldview apart. And they don't like that. They're being confronted with new creation. Emphasis on the new part. Jesus is operating outside of their known system. Well, the the man's parents, they're afraid too. You see, there's a lot of fear in this story. They're afraid that they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue which means basically their whole social support system and economic support system. You know, in one of uh, John's letters, 1 John chapter 4, he says that love, perfect love, casts out all fear. And the gospel story of Jesus is the way that love casts out fear. Now, you got to be careful because I think sometimes it works in the reverse as well. Perfect fear casts out all love. And so let's not be a people that are ruled by fear. Let's be a people who are ruled by love. So then they call the man himself back because his parents are like, oh, that's not our problem. That's him. You, you. They just, boom, here's the bus. Go. Um, and they, they call the man back a second time. And they say, give glory to God. Tell us the truth. Basically, they're like, put your hand on the Bible and you swear. You tell us what really happened here. Because their assumption is that Jesus was a sinner because he broke the rules. Therefore, if you've been healed, it was God's work. It had nothing to do with this Jesus guy. But John is trying to get us to see the irony here, right? The man who was born blind is giving glory to God. He sticks with his story. No, this guy Jesus was the one who healed me. He doesn't let fear cast out love. He moves to calling Jesus a prophet and then ultimately the Messiah and finally to worshiping him. And so this whole passage, if you were to sum it up, is about seeing versus not seeing. And the funny thing is that everybody in this story is actually blind. Everybody. Guess what? We, we are all blind in some way or another. The man was born that way the Pharisees chose to be that way. The difference was that man who was born blind, he knew he couldn't see. The Pharisees were deluding themselves. They were unaware. And so the first step in learning how to see is learning to claim our own blindness, that we need to have our eyes opened. And John wants us, too, to see. It's not just about some guy who was born blind It's us who need to be led out of the darkness into the light. And yeah, sometimes 
Sometimes God does these miraculous, and I've, I've actually been there, and I've seen people who have been healed. No explanation. Cancer is gone. And why does it happen to some people and not to others? I have no idea. I've been there. But I think more often, the act of healing is an inner healing. The act of seeing isn't through the eyes, but it's through the eyes of the heart. It's our soul being healed. You know, the word salvation can be translated healing just as well. And a big part of salvation is that movement from living for us. And when you are healed, you start living for the other. And then it's, he, Jesus kind of concludes by saying, I am the light that shines in the darkness. I'm the light of the world. In a chapter that's all about blindness. Right? Jesus is coming into the world as the light. And here's what happens. He kind of divides the world into two different groups of people now. Those who come to the light and allow it to change them, to shine in their darkness, to have their eyes opened. And those who resist the light and push against it and choose to remain in the darkness. Who say, no, I already see just fine. Thank you. And so this chapter kind of ends with a great irony that the man who is born blind is healed and Jesus' accusers claim to be the ones who can see but are blind. And I don't think being in the dark is the sin. I think it's claiming to see when you can't. So let's not be like the people who resist the light. Let's not be like people who live out of fear. Because maybe God is more mysterious than we realize. Let's be the people who welcome the light to shine into our darkness, asking God, help me see. Open my eyes, Lord. Help me to choose love. This day and every day. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to continue to look to Jesus. So that we can be sure we are standing alongside the man who was born blind. That we can see how we are in the dark. That we can allow your love to cast out the fear within us. Lord, we thank you that on this day, you continue to shed light into our lives and you continue to heal. Heal us, Lord. Heal us and bring us more and more into your kingdom so that we may participate in that good virus that is infecting the world for the sake of how things are meant to be. Your shalom. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As always, thank you for spending your time with us here at First Presbyterian Church. We are located at 80 28th Street, and we worship on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. And if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to have you join us. And if you can't be in the neighborhood, but you'd like to participate more broadly, you're welcome to go to our YouTube channel. You just pop in First Presbyterian Church Bogdan into the YouTube search bar, and our live tab there has all of our worship services. So you can participate more fully that way with the music and the liturgy. Um, and on the first Sunday of the month, we have communion, so you can participate from a distance that way as well. And of course, as always, 
If you feel called to financially support the ministry here at First Pres, I invite you to go to our website and you can give that way, www.fpcogden.org. Well, thank you for spending your time. Thank you for supporting us and may God's light continue to shine in your world and you take it out with you wherever you go.